0: Hey everyone, I'm Megan and you are listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Welcome back, and thanks for listening to this week's episode. Now, those of you who don't know me personally probably don't know what motivated me to start this podcast in the first place. And there are actually a few reasons, which I'm not going to go into today, but there are also a few unsolved cases that started me on this journey, and today is one of those cases. The story I will be sharing today is that of a young woman who is actually a family member of a very close friend in my life, And this young woman was a school acquaintance of mine as well. She was not someone I knew, but a face in the hall for many years of school, and having that history can make a situation like this hit just a little differently. I wanted to cover this case a long time ago, but having the connections I had was making it difficult for me to see it through. But everyone, including her, deserves justice, and people who are responsible for such heinous crimes deserve to be behind bars. So let's get started. In June 2015, a young woman set out on a solo fishing trip about an hour away from home to a spot in South Dakota along the Missouri River. Several hours later, the body of a young woman is found in the river near a boat dock, and a family's worst nightmare becomes an unimaginable reality. This is the murder of Alicia Marie Hummel. On June 1, 2015, 29-year-old Alicia Hummel was starting her first day of summer vacation. Alicia worked at the Siouxland Family Center located in Dakota City, Nebraska, where she taught early Head Start classes for infants and toddlers. Alicia was getting ready to enjoy a month-long vacation, and she wasn't wasting any time. Now, if that were me, the first day of a month-long vacation, I would probably lounge around without even changing out of my pajamas but that wasn't who Alicia was. Her family describes her as being adventurous and spontaneous. Alicia decided that she was going to spend some time fishing. The best I can tell is it must have been more or less a last minute decision because Alicia had gone onto Facebook the night before asking her Facebook friends want to go fishing and she contacted several of her friends to go with her, but no one was able to. Her grandmother Jan even urged her to not go alone, but she was adamant on going, so she got up, ate breakfast, and got herself ready for the day's activities she had planned for herself. As Alicia was leaving, her grandfather Duane was outside pulling weeds, and he and Alicia had a short conversation in which he agreed to help clean any fish she brought back with her. Alicia planned to go to Myron Grove, which was a remote fishing area in South Dakota, about an hour north of Sioux City, Iowa, where she lived. Myron Grove was a spot she knew well, and it was one of her favorite places. Now, Alicia was well known to be an avid user of social media and loved to take selfies, so much so that those closest to her referred to her as a selfie queen. She was constantly posting updates on Facebook and Snapchat, and this particular day was no different at 10:53 a.m. alicia posted on facebook first day of ak i'm going fishing her next post came exactly 1 hour later at 11:53 a.m. through snapchat it was a picture of alicia's fishing pole sitting in the passenger seat of the car and sticking up through the sunroof with the caption when your fishing pole doesn't fit. Shortly after this, she had left home and around 1 p.m. she had stopped at the Walmart in Vermillion, South Dakota, which is about a 38-minute drive north of Sioux City, to purchase a fishing license. From there, Alicia had sent another Snapchat as she was entering Myron Grove and another one when she arrived at the boat dock around 1.30 p.m., showing the Myron Grove sign with the caption, Finally, I've been waiting since fall. Alicia's friend, Bethany Facina then got a text message from Alicia at 1.45 p.m. which said, Apparently, it's a nice day to get it on in the car midday too, LMAO. After this, there were no more text messages, no more Facebook updates, and no more Snapchat photos. As the afternoon passed and Alicia's family and friends hadn't heard from her, they started to become worried. Alicia was attached to her phone so Jan felt something just wasn't right. She was sending messages to her granddaughter but getting no response. While Jan was trying to reach Alicia from their home back in Sioux City, things at the Myron Grove boat ramp were not so quiet. Now, the times vary from report to report, so we don't have anything consistent to go off of. But sometime between 2 p.m. and 3.30 p.m., a Games, Wildlife, Parks, and Rec, Myron Grove employee found a body in the river, in the shallow water near the docks. Around 5 p.m., police located Alicia's car in the parking lot near the boat dock and contacted Alicia's husband, Tony Hummel, that Alicia may be missing. Tony then called Alicia's close friend, Bethany, and Alicia's grandparents, Jan and Duane, only to find out that Alicia was not with them either. Around 9 p.m. that night, the South Dakota DCI informed Jan and Duane, as well as Bethany, that they had located a body in the water near the boat dock, and after speaking shortly with Jan, confirmed that it was, in fact, Alicia. But police stunned the family when they were told that Alicia had been murdered. Based on the autopsy, Alicia's cause of death was asphyxia due to drowning, but she also had contributing factors and suffered blunt force trauma to the head and a cut to her throat. The autopsy findings have never been released, but investigators have stated that Alicia wasn't sexually assaulted because investigators felt the killer didn't have enough time to do so. They also speculated from the time Alicia sent that last text message at 1 45 PM until the time she had been killed was likely anywhere from 15 to maybe 30 minutes and she wasn't in the water for very long. Those close to Alicia have said that she had an open casket at her funeral and aside from what police have released there were obvious signs of a struggle. From what they saw Alicia fought hard and was badly beaten with severe bruising to her head and face, and she also looked to have had a broken finger. But everyone was asking the same question, who could have done something like this? Alicia was a kind person who loved everyone, but police soon discovered that Alicia's marriage wasn't picture perfect. Alicia grew up in Sioux City and was raised by her grandparents from the time that she was eight years old. While she was in high school, one of her friends introduced her to Tony Hummel, the two hit it off and became high school sweethearts. After graduating from high school in 2004, Alicia went off to college at SDSU and graduated in 2009. From there, Alicia went to earn another degree from USD and while attending, she and Tony tied the knot on July 30, 2011 and Alicia graduated with her second degree in 2012. The couple had settled at a home in Vermilion, but as the years went by, the marriage started to crumble. Alicia had spent a period of time struggling with the idea of ending the marriage. She loved Tony and wanted to make it work, but didn't seem to get the same effort from him to work on their marriage. There were emotional and financial disconnects within the marriage, making it difficult for Alicia to stay and be happy. One of the things that everyone who knew Alicia knew about her was that she had a love for and wanted kids, whereas Tony didn't at the time. Then one day, events escalated Alicia's exit when she returned home and found her husband in bed with another woman. In 2014, the two had separated and Alicia returned to her grandparents' home. Investigators learned that the divorce had been filed and that Alicia and Tony were due to sign papers on June 3rd, 2015, just two days after Alicia's death. So the investigation turned to Alicia's then-husband. Tony cooperated with the investigation and was able to provide a rock-solid alibi, placing him in Pierre, South Dakota, 200 miles away at the time Alicia was killed. So even though it was apparent that the marriage was over and wasn't ending on good terms, investigators were able to rule Tony out fairly quickly in the investigation. But of course, that took police back to square one. A few things that stumped investigators from the beginning was what was left at the scene and what was missing too. After finding Alicia, they discovered her car keys sitting in the passenger seat of her car, which was unlocked but they couldn't locate her purse or her cell phone. The Myron Grove employee who found Alicia said they saw a dark colored sedan with tinted windows and allowed exhaust leaving the area, but couldn't provide police with a better description. At the scene was also a pair of men's shoes, which were described as shoes like a restaurant worker would wear, but police have never released any additional details regarding the shoes that they found, but at this point believe them to be relevant in the case. Investigators concluded that the incident had taken place on the riverbank about 10 to 15 feet from the water where Alicia had been found. Police have never disclosed to the public the name of the employee who found Alicia and that they had brought that person in in the very beginning of the investigation and they were interviewed rigorously and are confident that they are not involved in any way. Because of Alicia's love for social media, police had to explore the possibility that she may have had someone who was infatuated or stalking her, and that she may have been followed by someone out to Myron Grove. So police reviewed the CCTV footage of the Walmart parking lot in Vermillion where Alicia purchased her fishing license. In the footage, they were able to spot Alicia and her car leaving the parking lot, but didn't see anyone following her or anything suspicious. Friends said since Alicia's separation from Tony, she had been hanging out with other men, but nothing serious, and she had never mentioned anyone was bothering her or anyone she was worried about either. Because Alicia was murdered in Myron Grove, which was in Clay County, South Dakota, the Sheriff's Department took over the investigation along with the help of the South Dakota DCI, along with other agencies from the area, and even occasional help from the FBI. Sheriff Andy Howe was the public spokesman for the sheriff's department and he had mentioned that there had been other people questioned and cleared in the investigation, but the leads were becoming fewer and fewer, which had been disclosed only eight days after the murder. By this point, the case was almost at a standstill and six months later, a $5,000 reward was offered to re-spark public interest in Alicia's death. From there, things remained quiet. And on June 1st of 2016, on the one-year mark of Alicia's death, family and friends held a balloon release at Memorial Park Cemetery, where Alicia is buried. A little over a month later, on the 4th of July 2016, the first major development emerges in the case a couple of college kids who were spending time on a sandbar downstream from the Myron Grove boat ramp found a purse. It was Alicia's. Inside was her ID, credit cards, and cash. After this discovery, police almost immediately ruled out robbery as a motive. Following the discovery of the purse, no new leads had come into investigators, and the case was losing momentum. So then what was the motive? To have a woman enjoying a summer day fishing, brutally attacked and murdered in broad daylight with no reasonable explanation as to why. This thought baffled everyone, including investigators, and now it became a possibility that this could have been a random attack and a crime of opportunity. As time went by and no developments were released to the public, many people started to do their own speculation and theories in the case. Stories emerged that Alicia may have witnessed a drug deal or a possibility that she may have seen something she wasn't supposed to see. Because of the fact that Alicia's phone had never been found, it was highly speculated that there is something on that phone which would hold the key to solving the case. Jan referred to Alicia's phone as her Bible. She would never go anywhere without it, and she suspected that may be why Alicia's finger had been broken by someone attempting to pry her phone out of her hand. Now, while I was researching this case, I found a video put together by two YouTubers on their channel, Enigma Web Productions, about Alicia's case. I will include a link in the episode description for anyone who would like to watch it. One of them did a lengthy interview with Bethany Fasina, one of Alicia's closest friends. As I watched it, I thought that after the interview with Bethany, that would be the end, but it wasn't. I was caught off guard when they announced that they had received word from another individual who claimed to be involved in the investigation and had never spoken publicly before this interview. This man is Nicholas Bertrand. Now, this man, Nicholas, identified himself as a suspect in Alicia's murder. Nicholas, at the time, was living in Sioux City, Iowa. He claimed he couldn't remember from the timeline if he was or wasn't married at the time, but at the time of the interview, he was divorced. He said his ex-wife was really good friends with Alicia, and according to Nicholas, his ex-wife approached him and told him that her friend had just died. The two wanted to pay their respects, so they decided to do that by making the one-hour trip from Sioux City to Myron Grove where Alicia was murdered. When they arrived, there was still an abundance of police presence in the area to the point that they were unable to actually drive the gravel road to the boat ramp. When the two showed up on the scene, officers told Nicholas they were looking for a dark colored sedan with a loud exhaust, but it didn't seem that information had been released to the public yet. Nicholas said he was driving an older Volvo, but didn't mention the color, but confirmed it was dark colored, and he had just put what he called a glass pack on his car a few days prior. Now, from what I had looked up, a glass pack muffler, also known as a cherry bomb, will make your exhaust loud. And I do actually know this from experience because my husband had done the same thing with his vehicle several years back and it drove me nuts. But to play devil's advocate, it was something I'm sure several people did to their cars. So of course, this raised flags for investigators. Nicholas said he did take a polygraph test and claimed based on the polygraph that they cleared him, but then the police told him they didn't think he had anything to do with the murder, but he knew who did. According to Nicholas, he provided fingerprints and DNA to police, and they had, as he said, popped in and out over the course of two to four years. He said he couldn't remember what day his ex-wife told him when she found out Alicia had died, but he remembered what he and his ex-wife were doing the day she was killed. He said his ex-wife was working, which she worked at a daycare at the time, and he was alone fishing at a spot in Sioux City called Bacon Creek. He said he had stopped at a gas station but didn't remember what time that was or if security cameras were pulled from the gas station. He even offered the fact that he had scratches on his arms at the time police questioned him, and his story is that the kids across the street presumably were, where they lived, had kicked a ball into an evergreen tree and Nicholas had gotten his arm scratched up from getting the ball out of the tree for them. Now to top it off, Nicholas said he had recently found out as of the interview that his sister, according to him, who may or may not have paranoid schizophrenia, had a dream where Alicia had came to her and said that Nicholas had killed her and the sister took that information to law enforcement. So he was implying that the DCI went after him harder based on the fact that his sister went to police who may have been suffering from a mental illness and told them Alicia told her in a dream that her brother killed her. I really don't know what to say to that, and to be honest, even though he came forward to do the interview, the things he says, in my opinion, seem at the very least odd, and suspicious. But what do I know? I'm just a podcaster. One of the things towards the end of the interview that sticks out to me, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he hoped for the family that they could eventually get answers as to why. But we all know you need a who before you know a why. The video aired in November 2021, and Sheriff Howe has never made a public statement confirming or denying the information provided by Nicholas Bertrand in the interview. However, at the beginning of December, just a few weeks later, Sheriff Howe provided an additional statement to the public, and this time he said that they have Alicia's cell phone. He doesn't say how long they have had the phone in their possession, just that it was located at Myron Grove. They also claim to know what weapon was used to cause the blunt force injuries to Alicia's head, but don't know the weapon used that caused the injuries to her neck. And that they have suspects, but they just don't have a case that they can prosecute. One of the interesting things in the investigation is that the people who Alicia had claimed she saw having sex in the car at the boat ramp to this day have never come forward. So it could certainly mean either the people she saw, at the very least, had something to do with her death, or they may be too scared to come forward to say they were there. Since Alicia's death, Tony had cut ties with Alicia's family and friends. He ended up marrying the woman that he was caught cheating on Alicia with and moved away from the area he was living to move on with his life. Alicia's family and friends feel very confident that Tony had nothing to do with her death and that someone else is responsible. News outlets, both local and national, have covered Alicia's story to try to put a killer behind bars and provide some sort of closure to her family, but to no avail. June 1st of 2023 will be eight years since Alicia was taken. A young woman with so much to offer, on the verge of a new phase of her life, to find herself and happiness. It appears that the police have suspects in the case, but not enough to move it forward for an arrest or indictment. Even if you have information that you feel is small and meaningless, could just be what brings answers to the Folker's family and Alicia's friends. Police have spent years waiting for people to come forward who were at Myron Grove that day, even if it was hours prior to Alicia being there. So if you have any information regarding Alicia Hummel's murder, or we're at Myron Grove on June 1st, 2015, please contact the Clay County Sheriff's Office at 605-677-7100. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Tune in in two weeks for a new episode. Secrets in the Cornfield is an Anchor original. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. You can find Secrets in the Cornfield, Iowa's Unsolved, on Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Facebook, Secrets in the Cornfield Podcast, and if you have a case request, comment, or question, you can send me an email at sitcpod at gmail.com.